Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is CNN Breaking News. You're watching CNN. I'm Julia Chatterley in New York with you for the next hour. And we begin with the latest from Ukraine. Ukraine and Russia have agreed on six evacuation corridors. The firing is meant to stop for 12 hours in specific areas, including the city of Mariupol, whose population has been encircled for days. In the last hour, the deputy mayor of Mariupol told CNN residents are melting snow for drinking water. But movement of people from the worst hit areas has been limited, with reports that heavy weapon fire has disrupted efforts to leave. Ukraine's military says it is difficult to trust the occupier, quote, after Russia repeatedly broke promises that it would allow people to leave. The International Atomic Energy Agency says the Chernobyl nuclear plant remains safe after Ukraine warned of a possible radioactive leak. A power cut has halted the cooling of spent nuclear fuel and heavy fighting is preventing repairs. The IAEA says there's been no critical impact to safety. More than 200 staff have been manning the plant at gunpoint since Russia took it almost two weeks ago. The Kremlin has accused the United States of waging economic war following a barrage of sanctions to punish Russia for the invasion. The latest is a ban on the import of Russian oil. The Kremlin says this has unleashed turmoil on the energy markets and that it's working on its response. President Putin and his ministers meet on Thursday. Ukraine's foreign minister is due to meet his Russian counterpart, Sergei Lavrov, for talks on Thursday, too. Dmitry Kuleba says he does not have high expectations for the meeting, which will take place in Turkey. The Ukrainians are pushing for direct talks with Russia's President Putin, with Kuleba saying it is clear he makes all the decisions. A tiny trickle of refugees has made it out of Ukrainian cities under attack, but millions remain trapped amid worsening conditions. The UN says hundreds of thousands are on the move trying to get to safety. The struggle to survive and to escape is especially hard on the elderly and other vulnerable people, as CNN's Clarissa Ward reports. Incredibly, they emerge. Some still standing. Some too weak to walk after more than a week under heavy bombardment in the Kiev suburb of Irpin. Volunteers help them carry their bags, the final few feet to relative safety. There are tearful reunions, as relatives feared dead finally appear after days of no contact with the outside world. Many are still looking for their loved ones. Soldiers help where they can. For Larissa and Andri, it is an agonizing wait. Their son has been pinned down in the hotel he owns. We wait, we hope, we pray, they tell me. This is the grief of all mothers, of all people, Larissa says. This is a tragedy. Every time the phone rings, there's a scramble. Anticipation that it could be their son's voice on the line. This time, 
It is not. Excuse me, I can't talk, I'm waiting for my son. They are not the only ones waiting. These residents of a nursing home were among the last to be evacuated from Irpin. They have been sitting here now for hours. Confused and disorientated, many don't know where they are going. A volunteer gently guides these women back to wait for the next bus. Valentina tells us she is frightened and freezing after days of endless shelling and no heat. I want to lie down, she says. Please help me. But for now, there is no place to lie down. The women are shepherded onto a bus, their arduous journey not over yet. For Larissa and Andre, the wait is finally over. Their son is alive. The only words you can tell to the phone, like, Mom, I'm alive. Mom, I'm alive. And that's it. I'm the happiest mother in the world right now, she says. My son is with me. But not every mother here is so lucky. And for many, the wait continues. Clarissa Ward, CNN, Kyiv. Moldova is another border nation receiving huge numbers of people fleeing the war. A recreation center in the nation's capital has been turned into a temporary shelter. As CNN's Ivan Watson reports. Look how people here in Moldova are improvising to deal with the refugee crisis from neighboring Ukraine, turning a squash court into a place for refugees and for children, some of whom here have been on a bus for more than 70 hours traveling across the border uh, to relative safety. This is a small country, just 2.5 million people, and it has already dealt with more than 230,000 people streaming across the borders from the war zone in Ukraine. They come to makeshift places like this, and I can tell you refugees are still in shock, but some of them are also very angry and defiant. We are Ukrainians. It's our land. My my son was born in independent Ukraine. It's our land, independent. Nobody can enter our land. And if you if someone is entering, we have to answer because it's our motherland. We have no other choice. We are very peaceful people. We are not Nazi. We are just on other land with hands up. Please, we want to live. We want to be happy. Stop shooting, please. This is not a government-run shelter. This is coming with the help of private donations, groups like the Jewish community of Moldova taking care of thousands of people at centers like this and others that have cropped up in just the last week and a half. Almost everybody we've spoken to in Moldova has in some way reached out to help their neighbors from Ukraine, if not providing assistance, then even opening their doors and housing families as they come through. Most of the people here are going to move on to other countries, and they are just the beginning of a much larger flow of civilians fleeing Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Ivan Watson, CNN, Chisinau.
And the major moves by iconic global brands continues. McDonald's, Coca-Cola and Starbucks all suspending operations in Russia, where they've long been symbols of the American and global lifestyle. Anna Stewart joins us now. Anna, you and I were talking about this earlier this week, that, that McDonald's and Coca-Cola hadn't yet announced they were making any changes. Now they have. And it's fascinating when you look at some of the statements from all of these big companies. We are talking about hundreds of thousands of Russians potentially losing their jobs. We have to consider that along with what we're seeing. And that's potentially why it has taken so long for some of these big companies to make these announcements. I mean, hashtag boycott McDonald's has been trending on social media now for days. And in their announcement, they point out they're not just closing you know, 847 locations. It's one of the few countries where they actually own the majority of the locations as opposed to franchising. And they say they employ 62,000 people. Now, they are going to continue to pay those salaries for now, but you have to question for how long. And if we add some of the other big businesses we've seen, IKEA, they've closed up shop in Russia. They employ 15,000. They said they will be supporting employees. Again, we don't know the timeline for that. The big consultancy firms, I was just adding up some of their workforces, it totals over 18,000. So these measures are punishing ordinary Russian people. uh, And that's something these businesses didn't want to see. I mean, it's something that Heineken uh, certainly put in their statement. Yeah, that Heineken statement caught my attention too. Um, I think we've got it here to show people. We see clear distinction between the actions of the government and our employees in Russia and a lot of them making a real pointed push to separate these two things. But I think anything that creates a, a clear revenue stream in Russia now is being seen in some way either indirectly or directly funding this war. And, and that's the challenge here. One of the other challenges, Anna, is that in many cases, the West has, has gone dark in Russia now. So we don't really have a, a true sense what's happening for people and how life is changing. And the idea of seeing lots of McDonald's stores shuttered, Starbucks stores shuttered, um, life is changing, I think, on, on a fundamental basis, on a day to day basis. I'm sure life will feel like it is going backwards, going back into the sort of 1980s before Western brands, you know, opened up shop in Russia. Uh, And it's hard to, you have to imagine, it's hard to say exactly what it looks like because as you say, you know, news outlets aren't able to report from Russia right now. But high streets will look different as all of these stores, restaurants, cafes, shutter up for how long, we just don't know. Shelves and supermarkets will start to empty of all the Western brands that people have got used to. And you've got to imagine what this must feel like for your ordinary Russian. Not just uh, in terms of consumer goods, not just in terms of jobs, but also the fact that they can't actually fly to many locations. Europe is shut off to them. Um, You know, airspace bans, their international credit cards, if they have them, do not work. As of last night, if you had savings in dollars, well, you're limited as to how much you can take out of a bank. All of this adding up. And what would this mean for the economy? Well, that keeps changing. At the end of last week, Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan suggested that Russia's economy could contract by 7% this year. But that's potentially out of date because we're not just looking at sanctions. And of course, energy sanctions were added last night. But we're looking at this impact potentially in terms of unemployment as well going forwards. Uh, I think we probably just need to keep waiting. I mean, essentially, the economic battle is escalating day by day. Yeah, as the Kremlin said, they called it an economic war. Economic war is being waged and certainly the Russian economy is going to feel it, as with others. Anna Stewart, thank you. Now, China was quick to condemn the sanctions, if not the war itself, and has called for negotiations towards peace. Well, now President Xi Jinping offering to mediate between Russia and the international community. He made the comments during a virtual call with leaders of both Germany and France. Will Ripley joins us now. President Xi speaks, but actions will speak louder than words, as you and I often discuss. 
how? How could he mediate here, perhaps? How could he be a, a credible mediator when it is widely believed that President Putin and President Xi met on the sidelines of the Beijing Olympics and struck some sort of a deal to delay the invasion uh, until after the Olympics were over? Uh, it is... Um, it's jaw-dropping. And yet, you know, if you watch Chinese state media, Julia, they're praising this uh, peacekeeping effort by President Xi. They're talking about the uh, enhanced communication between Germany and France and China as they, as they work uh, to, to, to mediate this crisis without offering any actual details as to how this would work. President Xi is saying that he is deeply grieved by uh, the war that has once again broken out on the European continent. Uh, and, and, and condemning Western sanctions, condemning the, the economic warfare that has been unleashed on the Russian president for his unprovoked invasion of a self-governing uh, democracy, um, saying that these sanctions, Julia, would dampen the global economy that's already ravaged by the pandemic. It's, it's, this is the reality. This is the world that we're living in, where you can have two different, uh, completely different realities. And for huge you know, groups of, of different populations, they're going to believe one version. The other is going to see the other version. Really nothing based in, in truth or facts, but all in spin and, and in censorship in the case of, of, of the Chinese and Russian state media, Julia. Yeah, that's the challenge, isn't it? As one analyst said to me, China will do what serves China. So will they be willing to face secondary sanctions in the financial yeah. sector, for example? What does it mean for energy costs, perhaps, if they can negotiate those? We'll see. Will Ripley, thank you for that. All right, still to come. Plenty more on at CNN. Stay with us. Welcome back. The Kremlin spokesperson, Dmitry Peskov, saying today, quote, the United States has definitely declared economic war against Russia and is waging this war. The stunning speed by which Russia has been hit with Western sanctions and the rapid withdrawal of major multinationals from that country, as we've discussed, represents a historic uncoupling between Russia and the West. The US taking one of its most significant steps yet in announcing a complete ban on Russian energy imports. The UK announced a similar move, far more symbolic, though, in the case of these two nations than anything else. The EU by far the largest consumer of Russian energy exports. Russia provides some 45% of its natural gas, 25% of its oil. And as we discussed yesterday, the EU also now working to cut its Russian energy exposure by some two-thirds by next year. Easier said than done. All steadying a little bit today, but still near 14-year highs. Brent crude is up some 30% since Russia's invasion of Ukraine began. It's up almost 85% year over year. Much to discuss. Rob Thummel is Portfolio Manager and Managing Director at Tortoise Capital, and he joins us now. Rob, great to have you on the show. I think the ultimate question here is how easy is it to replace Russian energy? But I think we'll get to that question. Firstly, I want to start by asking you what's going on on a day-to-day -day basis. How easy is it for the Russians to sell their oil specifically currently? Yeah, yeah. yeah well, you've seen that it's been very difficult, right? So half of Russian oil goes to Asia, half of Russian oil goes uh, to the West. And so you know, clearly the West isn't buying Shell, all the, all the major you know, refiners that typically buy oil, Shell, BP, uh, even Exxon, they're not they're not buying Russian oil. The East, it, it, it's still yet to be determined. You know, the the oil price of, of Russia oil has declined significantly. It, it does still appear that China and India are buying Russian oil um, at a, at a significant discount. 
Um, but in the West, nobody's buying uh, Russian oil at the present time. What kind of discount? At what point does Russia start losing money or does it get uncomfortable? Like, What is their break even today? Oh, their break even is very low, Julia. It's, it's probably in the 10 to $15. I mean, it, it, uh, oil can go, go down quite a bit for, and, and, and the Russians can still make some, make some money uh, economically. Um, but, you know, the, big, the bigger picture is that you, there's a lot of shuffling, deck shuffling that can go on here. You know, the U.S. actually exports oil to China and to India right now um, because, uh, obviously, the U.S. price is significantly higher than the Russian price. You're probably going to see U.S. exports to those two countries, specifically China and India, decline. But that opens up available capacity for the U.S. to actually export to other countries, specifically uh, Europe, as you mentioned in, in your opening remarks. Yeah, I mean, this is the key here. And if we talk about the short term, we've got the threat of broader sanctions, the uncertainty over the conflict, and then the wild card, I think, the Iranian nuclear deal. It's almost like everybody's waiting for everybody else. The US is pushing the OPEC players perhaps to help reduce the high prices today, but they're waiting to see what the United States does with the Iran nuclear deal and whether or not more of their supply is going to come onto the market. It's sort of everyone watching everyone else. Yeah, that, well, Julie, you're, you're exactly right. That, that's the challenge right now. So the easiest way to solve this crisis right now is to get OPEC to produce more. Um, and, and OPEC could do that. Um, but OPEC is waiting to see if Iran is going to add vo- oil volumes to the market because it could be substantial. Um, when are we going to figure that out? Well, that's the U.S. decision, right, to, the, to determine should the U.S. remove Iranian sanctions. So OPEC's waiting on the U.S. The U.S. is waiting on OPEC, actually, to reach full capacity before U.S. producers are comfortable uh, producing more oil as well. So um, here in the short term, we got to figure all of that out. But uh, Actually, one wild card that could r- really help things is Canada. Canada could produce a lot more oil, export it into the, or imp- uh, the U.S. could import it from Canada, which would leave more capacity for the U.S. actually to also export oil uh, around the world. And what about shale? Bring in shale capacity here, because it seems like the United States is saying, look, perhaps we could produce more, get more from the shale players. But the shale players are saying, hang on a second, we need more money and the financing from Wall Street. So talk to them. And at the same time, we've got the the pressure to be cleaner and to move away from this overall. What impact could they have in an ideal world? Yeah. So so what shale oil and gas, natural gas in particular, have done has, has created energy security for the U.S., right? Really no other country in the world has it like the U.S. And that's it's all because of U.S. shale uh, oil and natural gas production, right? And so um, when you have energy security yourself, that is re- really an advantage as a country. Um, the U.S. Uh, can also, over the longer term, not only provide energy energy security here domestically, but also globally as well by exporting more and more volumes of natural gas in particular and oil. If we export more natural gas to Europe, to uh India as and you know and as well as China, that's decarbonizing as well because that natural gas actually mm. is going to be displacing coal, right? So that's going to so that's decarbonizing as well, and and, and I think is pretty integral and part of the uh, as part of the energy transition as well. So shale has a really important role and and will play an important role and has the ability to to increase production as soon as we solve this you know this this puzzle with regards to what what OPEC is going to produce and then ultimately what the Iran uh, sanctions are and what's going to happen with them. Yeah, there's a domino effect here. And I think we we need to separate out what's ha- happening in terms of the oil market, but also, and to your point here with bringing in shale, what's going on in the gas market? Because by my understanding, in terms of the daily amount that Europe's buying, it dwarfs 
what America produces in total and 40 percent of what America produces in terms of natural gas is committed elsewhere. So it comes back to the original question I asked but didn't, which is how easy is it in essence if we're talking about a time frame of six to nine months for the US to say, fine, we're not buying Russian energy and for the Europeans to say, we're going to reduce our reliance by 80 percent. How feasible do you think yeah, it is so, that everything works? Yeah, so six to nine months is very is, is very difficult. So so mm. so you quoted the stats exactly, Julia. I mean, U.S. exports of natural gas are about about twelve. Let's call it BCF a day. That's units, right? Uh, U.S. or sorry, Europe imports of, of Russian natural gas are fifteen BCF a day. So think about it. We started building U.S. liquefied natural gas facilities in 2016. They've ramped up their volume to that twelve BCF a day. I'm talking about basically last month that that's taken you know six seven years right so it's going to take a series of years to increase the export capacity of liquefied natural gas out of the u.s that will be part of the solution though for for europe or it should be part of the solution for europe but it won't be the only solution you're going to need other sources and in the short term uh europe's probably going to have to increase domestic gas production a bit uh and in addition uh, unfortunately you're probably going to have to reverse a little bit and go, and go backwards on energy transition temporarily um, and and really consume more coal uh, potentially and and continue to to uh, use nuclear power until other source supply sources uh, that are secure um, can can uh, result and and the u.s can be one of those and there could be others as well from from, from other lng producers in the world i think at the point where elon musk is tweeting as the biggest electric car maker in the world, that we need to ramp up oil and gas production in the short term, that the realisation, I think, is is hit for, for ordinary people as well, not to mention the high prices that we're seeing. Rob, I have about a minute left. Can you envisage a situation where Russia turns around and says, OK, I'm turning off the taps, be it oil or be it gas? And what would the oil price specifically go to, do you think, if that did happen? Yeah. Yeah, so so you got to look kind of look at those uh, both commodities a bit separately. But Russia is mm. a major supplier of energy to the world, right? Second largest producer of oil in the world. So right now the global oil market uh, actually is already undersupplied. We don't have enough supply to, to meet the, the current demand. So if you take all the oil production, the second largest c- country in the world, off the market, the oil price is going up, and it's going up a lot, um, and, uh, and very significantly. You know, similarly with, with with natural gas, the good thing about natural gas is we're entering into a, a period of time when you don't use as much natural gas because mm. typically natural gas is used for home heating. So, so oil, but but you got to think about it from the other side too. You know, uh, Russia needs revenue for the country, and oil and gas are a significant source of source of revenue for the country. So, uh, you know, geopolitically, I I think it probably makes a lot more sense for countries to evaluate banning Russian imports, um, and I think it. Personally, un- highly unlikely that Russia will 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 actually uh, ban exports from their country because of the because of the revenue source and the significant revenue source that both those commodities reflect. Yeah, Rob, great to get your insights. Thank you so much for that, Rob Thummel, managing director at Tortoise Capital. There. Okay, the U.S. Vice President will discuss the issue of supplying combat jets to Ukraine when she visits visits Poland later. Kamala Harris departed from Joint Base Andrews a few moments ago. Her visit comes after the Pentagon dismissed Poland's proposal to transfer their MiG fighter jets to the U.S. for delivery to Ukraine, saying it was not tenable. Quote, John Harwood joins me now. John, great to have you with us. It's a, I think the emphasis here is on fear and frustration. It shows you the challenges of NATO members not wanting to appear in any way aggressive 
but also the fact that you have these border nations like Poland that are saying, look, we want to help, we just need support and a bigger friend perhaps to do the hard work. John? Well, exactly, that's the case. And look, everyone's worried about escalation on various fronts. You know, Dmitry Peskov, as you know this morning, said the United States had declared economic war on Russia. What is, what is the implications of that? Well, set that aside for a second and just talk about the military aspect of this. Obviously, NATO countries uh, and the United States want to assist Ukraine. The question is, with respect to this particular jet swap, is one, this is from the administration's perspective, uh, one, will these additional uh, Soviet-era jets uh, make a big difference for the Ukrainian Air Force? They have an Air Force. How much will this improve their capacity to resist Putin's aggression? And secondly, uh, what does it do to the uh, possibility that uh, if these were to leave from either Poland or uh, from uh, a NATO base uh, in Germany, uh, does that provoke Russian airstrikes? Poland's obviously concerned about that. That's why they issued a proposal saying, well, we'll give them to uh, uh, the uh, U.S. air base in Germany and they can give them to Ukraine. The United States is concerned, well, will Russia then uh, decide that that is an act of war by NATO and strike those uh, 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 Ramstein air base? So that's, that's the challenge is how to assist to the maximum extent possible economically and military, uh, militarily without provoking an escalation with uh, the world's uh, second greatest nuclear power after the United States. That's all the problems, John. What about the solution? How do we, how do we get around this? Well, uh, you know, the uh, United States and NATO have been um, as aggressive as they think they can in terms of providing uh, any aircraft and uh, uh, various uh, uh, military, defensive military weaponry to Ukraine. Uh, planes seem to be on a different, um, uh, on a different level. So uh, uh, Vice President Harris has got her work cut out for her in trying to figure out whether this swap is feasible. It's not, we don't know that this is ultimately going to get worked out. It might not. Uh, but uh, that's something that she's going to have to discuss and figure out if there are ways that uh, they think uh, are uh, past the cost-benefit analysis or the risk-benefit analysis uh, mm. in terms of uh, how R Russia will respond. Yeah, and the daily pleas from the Ukrainian president will continue. John Harwood, thank you for that. You bet. We're continuing to monitor the latest developments out of Ukraine. Stay with CNN. Welcome back. As we reported earlier, Ukraine and Russia have agreed on six evacuation corridors. A 12-hour ceasefire has been called in specific areas, including Mariupol, which has been surrounded for days. However, movement from the worst-hit areas has been limited, with reports that Russian forces are blocking people in one corridor north of Kyiv. Ukraine's military says, quote, it's difficult to trust the occupier after Russia repeatedly broke promises it would allow people to get out. Scott McLean is in Lviv for us. Scott, the prey and hope here is that people can escape during this 12-hour period, but the reports are, it seems, that these corridors are complicated, to say the least. Exactly. You have two parties that are literally at war that have to agree on these very fine details of exactly where and when and how these corridors will move. They have to agree on what will come in and who exactly will be able to leave. And that seems to be increasingly difficult on the ground, though there has been some bright spots, some uh, little bits of success thus far. You mentioned Mariupol, uh, Volnavaha. Those areas have been very difficult. The Ukrainians in recent days have accused the Russians of shelling the corridors. Uh, there were five that the Ukrainians 
have agreed upon today to allow people to get out and to allow uh, aid, desperately needed aid, to get in. But there is sort of limited success of those corridors. So Bucha, you mentioned, is a suburb just north of Kiev. Uh, and the Ukrainians, the city, local city council there, says that the Russian military is blocking the departure of the convoy that's been organized in that area, blocking them from getting out, despite the fact that the Russians have agreed that this corridor would take people to Kyiv, and then from Kyiv, obviously, they'd be able to take a train or get out in other ways. However, we understand that, for instance, the corridor from Erpin, an area that has taken intense shelling in recent days, that convoy is moving and people are on their way. There was also one special corridor set up for uh, an orphanage where there was some uh, 50 or so uh, staff and children who uh, were looking to get out there. We understand that that corridor has had success. But then, uh, for instance, Izium, uh, that's a town in the east of the country. That one, uh, according to local officials on the ground, there is some fighting uh, in that area, some explosions that have been heard, which seems to be delaying that corridor. Um, earlier, uh, Brianna Keeler, CNN's Brianna Keeler, spoke to the mayor of Kiev, who said that in Bucha, for instance, there were a thousand people, as he understood it, in a bunker that have limited access to food and water. Um, and so the situation is increasingly dire. The one bright spot that I mentioned is the city of Sume in the northeast of the country. That is where there were a particularly high number of foreign students who had been trapped there since the outset of this war. Yesterday, officials said that some 5,000 people were able to come out of that city. Those students were actually prioritized on the first convoy out. There were more than 700 of them, mostly from India. We, they managed to get, a, get out of that city. It was an 11-hour bus ride through the corridor. From there, they were immediately put on a train to here in Lviv. That train a couple of hours ago actually arrived. I spoke to some of the students who arrived on it. The Indians we missed. They were put directly on a train headed to Poland. Uh, but the Nigerian, mostly Nigerian students, were headed to Hungary by bus, and they described absolutely terrifying scenes over the past few days, hiding in bunkers, hearing the sounds of the bombs. At one point, one student said that she accepted the fact that there was a good chance that she would not survive, and she told her parents as such. Another student told me that at one point there was an explosion that was so loud, he actually believed that the building, the residence building that he was living in, was hit itself. It turns out it was a building nearby, but he said it, it's not like you just hear the explosions, you actually feel them. And so these people uh, are obviously very happy to be alive, very happy to be in one, in one piece. Their journey has been difficult, but trust me, there were no complaints about that. Yeah, incredibly brave. Um and what incredible stories you're hearing and, and these people are telling you. And I, I think of their families back home as well, just praying that they, they make it safely out too. Scott, thank you for joining us. Now, more than a million refugees have streamed into Poland since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. The UN estimates at least two million people are on the move. All those people need food, housing and heat, as you were just hearing there. Shelterbox is an international charity that provides shelter and aid packages. It was worked in Ukraine in 2008 and in the wake of the Crimea invasion in 2014. It now has a team working on the Polish border. And joining us is Kerry Murray, president of Shelterbox USA. Kerry, good to have you with us. I know you were at the Ukraine-Polish border yesterday, so you have a sense of, of what's going on. Just, just give us your assessment and, and what the people that you were seeing there were telling you. Sure. Shelterbox was deployed 
at the Pashi Mobile uh, train station, and we were seeing thousands of people coming in. This train station is the main stop for people coming over from Ukraine. It's the first stop. And so 20,000 people arriving there every day. And yesterday, what I saw, mostly women, children, elderly, disabled, lots of pets. Uh, they left with little more than the clothes on their back, maybe a small bag. It's very cold. And many of these families didn't know where they were going next. And that's clear. Uh, and, you know, it's incredible to see the Polish community because, yes, 60 percent of the people who fled, the two million people, over a million now are going into Poland. And the Polish people are the first responders. They were providing hot meals there, free SIM cards, rides. Uh, but these people are going to need a lot of help. And it's just the provision of basic needs that they're going to have. And so at Shelterbox, we've been here in Poland. We've been assessing how we can help one in the neighboring countries, including Poland, what are the needs that people are gonna have? And it's everything from hygiene supplies, blankets, jackets, could be cash allotments. And we're also looking at how we're mounting a response in Ukraine as well. Many people moving from east to west and you know, basic needs there as well. Their homes have been damaged or they're in shelter services, evacuation centers, sleeping on floors. So Shelterbox provides things like sleeping mats, mattresses, blankets, uh, even shelter kits, repair kits that help repair these damaged homes. So we're looking to help thousands and thousands of families. But right now, this is a very fast moving crisis. It's changing. And we just stand committed with many other humanitarian organizations in trying to help these displaced families. I mean, so many questions come to mind when you're saying that, particularly the UN saying this could be as many as seven and a half million people it's not going to stop and you have to consider those that you have now and to your point that they don't necessarily have somewhere to go on to but also um, how many more people are coming um just in light of what mm -hmm. we're discussing today kerry the the corridors that are being negotiated mm -hmm. and there are concerns about whether or not the ceasefires are, are being held to how important are these for the help that you provide, the aid that goes in. Just give us a sense of, of just how important it is that, that both sides adhere to, to what's been agreed. Yeah, they're absolutely essential. We can't do our work. The international humanitarian aid communities that are going to go in and help to save lives cannot do our work if these corridors are not open. We have to advocate for the open access. And so people can leave, but the humanitarian transportation can go in with relief supplies. We have to be able to access these corridors. They're essential to our work. Yeah. I mean, the other thing I think that you're dealing with, and it's almost like we've forgotten it in, in our coverage on a daily basis, is the pandemic that's still going yes. on. Kerry, how are you managing all that? And how are your people managing all that in addition to, to everything else that you're trying to analyze and assess? And, and Yes, well, it, it underscores the work that... It underscores the work that we do at Shelterbox every day. So the importance of your home to your health and safety and obviously mitigating the spread of COVID-19. So it makes us just and the urgent work that we do even more urgent because we have to help protect these families. And, we, you know, when they're in crowded collective centers and evacuation centers, they don't have the ability to social distance and isolate their families. So our work becomes even more critical. And so we have to be able to get these this aid to the families that need it most. What do you need, Kerry? Is it is it money, more support, 
how are you liaising with the Ukrainian government, if at all, and other NGOs that are, are working there? What do you need at this moment for those that might be watching this? So for an organization like Shelterbox, we rely on private charitable support. People who see this and want to help people in the world, they'll never meet. But this is a moment in time that we can make a difference and we have to. So people can make a contribution to our work. There are a lot of organizations doing really good work. Leave it up to the experts that are here on the ground working. Everyone wants to pack a box and send it. It is incredibly complex, the logistics of getting aid into these countries. You've heard about the, the issue with these corridors you have to rely on these organizations and the nice thing is we're here we're working together we're part of the logistics cluster the shelter cluster here we're organizing with lots of other other nonprofits, and we are working fast and furiously to to really help make a difference in the lives of these families Carrie, it must be heartbreaking i think for you and your team do you really feel yes, like you're I mean, making I mean, a I met huge difference yesterday. We're trying. I met a woman yesterday. She was with her 10-year-old son. She had traveled for five days by foot, by bus, and then by train. And while she had her 10-year-old son with her, she had to leave her 22-year-old son behind. And he had to stay. Men between the ages of, of 18 and 60 have to stay and fight. And it was incredibly hard for her. She didn't know if and when she's going to be able to go home and see her son. And so people have their families ripped apart. And they just need the basic supplies. We have to help these families, both the ones that are fleeing into the neighboring countries, but also the people that are stuck in Ukraine. This is a a massive humanitarian issue for the people who are left behind fighting. We have to help them. Yeah. Kerry, thank you for being there. Thank you to you and your team and and for joining us today. Kerry Murray, president of Shelterbox USA there. Thank you. We're back after this. Welcome back. The humanitarian crisis in Ukraine is growing as more people are evacuated from the worst affected areas. Some business owners are facing the challenge, too, of staying online and relocating their staff. Software firm Intellius is one of Ukraine's biggest tech companies. Since the invasion, its CEO has been working to move his employees and his family out of conflict zones and into safety. Vitaly Sedler, CEO and co-founder of Intellius, and he joins us now from Lviv. He's also president of the IT Ukraine Association. Vitaly, thank you for your time today. Uh, I know you were moving very quickly before the conflict started to get your people to safety. Are they all at least safe for now in Lviv? Yeah, we, we have moved more than uh, 1,200 people from uh, unsafe territories to the western part of Ukraine. Unfortunately, it's not uh, all people whom we, whom we had to move. So some uh, something like three to 400 people are still in central and eastern parts of Ukraine. And uh, as evacuation now is, is uh, much more difficult in, in the last uh, uh, four or five days, we are now working case by case trying to evacuate those people who left, uh, who stayed still in, in those areas. And uh, so we moved many of our people to Western Ukraine, and also we moved uh, more than 350 women and kids outside of Ukraine. So men cannot leave Ukraine uh, at the moment, only women and kids can leave. So we also support moving all those, uh, all, all our employees, women employees, and also family members together with kids to our offices in Poland, uh, primarily to Krakow. I mean, you finance the cost of moving. You're also paying your workers in advance, I believe, simply so that they have enough cash 
Yeah, indeed we do this. So uh, we are a people-centric company. Of course, we care a lot about how our people feel and uh, we support them financially, we support them organizationally to take them from out, uh, away from, uh, from risk and unsafe uh, territories. So uh, this financial support uh, costs us basically millions and uh, that's, uh, of course, uh, it's uh, some burden on, on the company, but people are most important. So we, we do not think a lot about money now, we think about our people. I know. You're obviously a man between the ages of 18 and, and 60, and I'm sure a number of your employees are. Um, you're computer programmers, you're, you're tech geeks, forgive the phrase. Um, how do you all feel about the prospect of fighting? Well, uh, probably software engineers are not best fighters in the world, on one hand. On the other hand, uh, for Ukraine, software engineering, IT industry is very important in economical in economical sense, right? Mm -hmm. So we bring a lot of uh, revenue into the country. We, we created uh, hundreds of thousands of highly paid positions, uh, highly paid uh, jobs in the country. So basically we see uh, as, as our key, <clears throat> key focus for today is to bring back, uh, to, to restore uh, our delivery process and continue uh, economical activity in the country so that the money flows into the country on one hand on the other hand we we, we provide this by, by working by sitting at the keyboards it helps people to uh, to, to 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 really be be not so much distracted as they were when the war started so doing our job today is important it supports people it supports the economy of the country and that's what we push for that's what we ask our people to do now you raise a really important point, which are, is that there are many battles being fought here, the, the physical, the violent, but also the economic battle that's taking place and, and how it's punishing the economy and, and punishing people at the same time. I think one of the, the big fears and concerns was the risk of cyber attacks and cyber threats. Can I just ask you about how resilient Ukraine is, given your experience and, and your representation in the IT industry? And and what you make of what you've seen so far that, that we believe is emanating from Russia? Right, first uh, cybersecurity attacks uh, from Russia onto Ukraine happened uh, many years ago, right? So it happened mm -hmm. after, uh, after they invaded Ukraine in 2014. So basically since that time, it's, it's uh, six, seven years, Ukraine was preparing to, to, to uh, counterfeit uh, those cyber attacks and I think for today uh, we are much better prepared than we were uh, in the past. So those cyber attacks that I have seen over the last uh, couple of weeks are not critical to our, to our IT infrastructure on, on the state level. So I, I would mm. trust that our cyber security, uh, cyber security teams at Ministry of Digital Transformation uh, are powerful enough to, to, to have our IT systems uh, secure. Do you worry that there is a threat that Russia could destabilize some of the more key infrastructure? Or do you think perhaps, given the limitations we appear to be seeing on the military side, actually their capabilities aren't as great as, as feared? Well, I think Russia will use uh, all possible ways to destabilize the country. So that's, uh, that's economical uh, ways, right? Uh, military ways, also cyber, cyber security ways. On one hand, but on the other hand, Ukraine has proven that it can push back Russians' attacks and it can be, it can stay strong and uh, and uh, and keep the country up and running, right? And this also concerns uh, cybersecurity issues. So again, our teams, uh, I'm I'm quite confident they will push back all 
all this kind of uh, threats and all this kind of attempts to, dis- to destabilize the country in, uh, in IT space. Vitaly, it's interesting. We've been talking about cybersecurity, but I was just thinking back to what you said about the separation of the women and the children and the people that have stayed behind. And I know you also are separated from your, your wife and your family and your, your daughter who've left as well. What do you want people to understand about what Ukraine is going through and, and what it's like to be suddenly separated from the people you love most in the world? Yeah, it's it's hard uh, situation, you know. Uh, you, you could never imagine that this, this could happen in the in the middle of Europe, right? So we are a peaceful country, and uh, I was living my my life. I was building business. Uh, I am still doing this, right? But uh, uh, just uh, just this this huge change in one day, you cannot really understand this. You cannot understand why this happens and uh, how this will develop. So I can. Uh, you always hear about wars here and there in, in, in the world, but you, you cannot really think about what how it can how it can impact your country and your life. So that's very stressful, honestly. And uh, of course, uh, for me personally, it was very important to have my family safe. So basically, second day, I had to to push a little bit on my wife and on my on two of my grandmas so that they really leave the country to, to be to be in a safe place in in, in Poland. Then my wife came back, and uh, <clears throat> so she's here with me to support uh, support me because she she's my family. I'm her family, right? So we, we stay together. But uh, of course, that's, that's very it's that's that's very difficult. And look, we are we are here in Western Ukraine, right? So it, it's uh, it's less or more calm and less or more safe here. So I can only imagine what people that come from eastern and central parts of Ukraine they feel mm-hmm. when uh, when they are their family members are killed or lost somewhere or they have to really go with one one bag of, of their stuff uh, just just leaving everything they had in their lives uh, and and flee for for known time for, to, to in a known direction right so that, that's that's a strategy and again middle of europe so we are building our our communities we are building our country and then this happens i, I can really not understand how this think, this, this has been think, 21st century i think you used the word and it's tragedy. Vitaly, we wish you well. We wish your family well and safe. Vitaly Sedler, CEO of Intellius. Thank you, sir. Thank you. And we end today with a powerful piece of music, a hymn heard in the city of Lviv. It was shared on Twitter by my colleague Jim Shuto earlier today, and Jim tells us the words are based on my testament by the famous Ukrainian poet Taras Shevchenko. It begins, when I am dead, bury me in my beloved Ukraine. Our coverage continues after this. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 
and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.